you are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 189. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Catherine Coulter, who is a widely popular author of 89 novels almost all of them New York Times bestsellers. She began her incredible career writing historical romances before turning to suspense thrillers. The Cove, the first book in her best-selling FBI suspense thriller series, spent nine weeks on the New York Times list and has to date sold four million copies. Her latest book, Reckoning, was published on August 2nd and it's the 26th novel in that incredible series. It was such a thrill talking to a legend of the genre like Catherine Coulter. Uh, before we get to the interview though, uh, I just want to let you know that if you want to get notifications when I release a new episode or if you want to get one of my uh, novels for free, go to thrillingreads.com forward slash now and sign up for my email list. It's pretty easy. And I also want to thank you all. My latest thriller, Gringo Gulch, just cracked the uh, top 50 in Amazon's uh, hot new releases uh, category. Um, I've had this story in my head for more than 10 years. Uh, always wanting to write a gritty crime thriller set in my home country of uh, Costa Rica. So it's a great feeling uh, to see the book doing well. So I want to thank you. The second book in that series is now out for pre-order. Uh, you can check them all out at uh, thrillingweeds.com forward slash 823. All right, here is my interview with Catherine Coulter. Hey, everybody. This is Alan with Meet the Thriller Author. And on the podcast today, I have uh, Catherine Coulter, who is a number one New York Times bestselling author of 89 novels, including her FBI suspense thriller series. Her latest book, Reckoning, was published on August 2nd. It's the 26 books in that series, uh, bringing back Savage and Sherlock, who are enlisted to help women with traumatic pasts who are in mortal danger. We'll get all to that in here in a moment. But uh, first, uh, welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Well, thank you, Alan. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, 89 novels, that's, just, that's so amazing. Uh, so how did you get started in this business and writing that first novel? I don't like to think about 89 either. It just makes me start quaking. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a lot of words. That's a whole oodle number of words, and I just don't like to think about it. Well, you know, uh, I'm an elder, and I started, my first book came out at the end of 1978, and this was when New York publishing was the center of the universe, literally, in, in the United, in the world, and nobody knew nothing. You know, this was before the beginning of any of the writer organizations. Um, so, it, again, it was just a matter of ignorance. And what happened was, is uh, I was a speech writer on Wall Street, and, and my husband was in medical school up at uh, Presbyterian Medical School. And I'd seem like 30 minutes a night over spaghetti, which was mm -hmm. what I really cooked well. And uh, I was reading probably 10 to 15 books a week. And I'll never forget one night, and I don't remember the book, but I threw the book across the room and said, I can do better. And went in and told my husband. And he said, well, yeah, let's go for it. And he managed to trade out time and took the next weekend off. And he and I plotted uh, the first book. And actually, that was the first and last book that, that he and I plotted together. I started writing. And when it was done, 
I remember on the A train, which is the express train from like 14th down to Wall Street, uh, I had met a, a guy. I don't remember what he did at William Morrow, but he was he was up there. And so I said, well, you know, I've written a book and I'm sure he wanted to pat me on the head because <laughs> as I have learned over the years, everybody either wants to write a book or can write a book or is writing a book. But what he gave me was the name of a freelance editor, and she was also a model. And, oh, I couldn't believe what she looked like. Let's not go there. I'll just get depressed. <laughs> but uh, she read it, and she said, let's go for it. Now, what she had that, of course, I had no idea about was this was a, this was a Regency romance. Uh, let me just back up a second. And at that time, I, I just had the sense that if you're going to do something brand new, like write a freaking book, you want to know some stuff going in. And uh, my master's degree is in early European 19th century with an emphasis on England. Mm -hmm. And I had been raised reading Georgia Hare, who started the Regency genre. So I knew the Regency period backwards and forwards. I knew all the politics going on at the time. So I had, in, in essence, eliminated two big, huge unknowns. And so what she had was a list of the editors and the imprints that did the um, Regencies. And of course, I knew some of the imprints because I wasn't stupid. But what she had was the name Hillary Ross, who was the signet imprint at the time in New American Library, which was the top class act in the Regency romance at the time. So, Alan, you know now that you can take uh, query letter writing 101 for websites, yeah. but there was no such animal then. So I'll never forget, I wrote this dumb butt letter, something like, Dear Miss Ross, I wrote this book. I like it. I hope you do, too. I mean, it was really, you know, oh, good. anyway. And as she called me at my office three days later, took me out to lunch and offered me a three book contract. You, you know, everybody would be excited to hear that until you kind of delve into it. And there are a couple of reasons why publishers would do that. One, which I love to think was indeed the case, but probably wasn't, was that the editor absolutely loves the book. But the second most overwhelming reason is that over 60% of authors under contract to a publishing house are late. Can you believe that? That's crazy. They are late. And so when a book doesn't come in that's been scheduled, they they don't know, you know, they're, they're harried um, and they've got to find somebody to fill those slots. So that was probably why she picked me or, or, or published me at that time. So that's how it all started. The book came out in December of 1978. And uh, I'll tell you, it's, you know, in life, we have some specific memories that you'll die remembering. They're just like a, a picture clicks and you've got that forever. Well, I'll never forget. We lived in a big high rise in uh, Central Park South, right across from Lincoln Center. And a great big, um, what do you call it? Kind of like a hotel entrance. And all the mail and so forth packages were at the back front desk, like in a hotel. And I walked up there and I knew everybody. And and so th there were some smiles and uh, everybody knew about the book. 
And they said, Catherine, you have a package. And and I stood there and I opened that up. And there was there was the Autumn Countess, my very, very first paperback book. And it like it had my name on it. <laughs> you know, and it had this picture and it, it was just and I just stared at it. And I'll never forget. I walked to the elevator and uh, we lived on the 36th floor and I had my briefcase between my legs and I was still holding the book in my hands, just just about ready to faint. <laughs> and this guy behind me said over my shoulder, hey, Catherine, your book. Wow, that is fantastic. And look at that. I love the cover. This is great. Wonderful. And then we parted ways and I got off at the 36th floor and this was Frank Gifford. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I'll never forget. I don't care if he screwed around on his wife. Uh, what was her name? Uh, is it the Kathleen Gifford? Yeah, yeah. No. I don't care if he screwed around on her. He he was so generous to say that. Yeah. You know? And I've never forgotten it as long as as long as I will live. And uh, so that was the very that was the very first book. And it was so exciting. And of course, I did. I still knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> and when we finished the first three, uh, oh, it was interesting because the editor, Hilary Ross, normally what houses still do, if they don't like your name, they will like give you another name or ask you to pick another name and then they own it. And that can lead to all sorts of dire consequences for you as a writer. But instead, you know, my, my husband's name is Pogani, which is Hungarian. And she said, well, that's really not going to work on a regency. And then instead of suggesting a new name, she said, what's your maiden name? And I said, it's Coulter, Catherine Coulter. And it's so pretty, people think it's fake, but it's not. And it's also my legal name. So there was never an issue. And so she said, well, you know what? You really need to get yourself an agent. And because I was such an ignoramus at the time I accepted the agent who was one of her best friends. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I could have, I could have negotiated a finer contract myself, but uh, then what happened was um, this would be in 1980, 81, I guess I contacted Peter Heggie, who was the secretary of the authors guild at that time in New York. And the only reason I knew of him was because he's Hungarian. And so I called him up and I said, I want an agent and I want a woman. So he gave me three names. He gave me two women and one man. And today I no longer, I don't even remember who the women were, but I went to see the guy and he was at William Morris and his name was Robert Gottlieb. And he was six months out of the mail room. And at William Morris, this was M-A-L-E room, and they still are kind of like that, you know, but they're not quite so bad as they were back in the dark ages. He was in kind of this broom closet with no window and all this kind of stuff. But I asked him, I'll never forget, I said, what do you want to do? What is your? What are your goals? And he said, I want to be on the board of directors of William Morrow by the time I'm 45. I'll never oh, forget that. Wow. So then he negotiated, uh, changed them to long historical romances or bodice rippers, which they really were. They were hysterically fun. You know, you have the virgin who meets Mr. True Love and loses her virginity to him by page 19. They get separated. She has 
all these adventures all over the world. And then at the end, the last 19 pages, they get back together and then live happily ever after. But they were they were such fun to do. And uh, I'll never forget, he made my editor, uh, he, he brought her to tears because he de- he demanded like $10,000 a book. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I know, it was just hysterical. It was just hysterical. I'll never forget that. But this is a, a cute factoid is that in 1987, he called me up and, and he was nearly hyperventilating and he was 37. And he said, I just, I'm now on the board of directors. Wow. So you're almost about 10 years shorter. <laughs> you got it. And he is probably one of the top agents in the world. And we have been together since 1981, longer than any of his marriages. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I give the greatest presents. I really do. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so what, he married Olga in 2001, actually just before he uh, split off from William Morris because he got out sharked by Michael Ovitz. But this was a great move for him. And he opened Trident Media Group. He's just having a blast. And as I say, we've been together all this time and uh, so many adventures. And I have to admit that I have published in the golden age of mm-hmm. publishing. And then when, of course, ebooks, when uh, Amazon came in, and of course, their goal was to destroy publishing in New York, and they've done a pretty decent job. There are only four houses left now. And when Simon and Schuster is sold, that will make three big houses. That you know, there's the antitrust. Uh, yeah, they keep merging with right each now. other, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I hope that they they don't let them take over i i really hope so because we need to keep we need to keep the 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 houses as many well we have four uh but simon and schuster was kind of tanking uh and robert got me out of there just in time so i mean he is on top of everything he knows everyone he loves the art of the deal he was kind of like former president trump he loved the deal and very, very good at it. So that's that's kind of, you know, the publishing industry has changed tremendously with ebooks. Uh, I had asked my editor at William Morrow about what would you say ebooks to hardcovers? And she said, our most recent stats, yours, are 3.5 ebooks sold to one hardcover. Mm-hmm. So you can really see the um how how you folks are taking over and you have to admit it's so easy yeah yeah i love my kindle it's just so easy to have like hundreds of books in there (laughs) yeah and i can remember traveling to europe packing three or four or five books and now whoa baby you know not a problem (laughs) so it's it's a very interesting time and a very exciting time for new authors because there are so many possibilities that weren't available back in the golden age. And if you were lucky enough to get accepted by one of the big seven, you were set. But if you weren't, you were screwed. Yeah. You were screwed. But now the you know the world's your oyster. You can do whatever you want. It's it's just it's it's fantastic. And uh, w- when did you decide to like transition to uh, like thrillers and mysteries? Were you always a were you a fan of that as a reader as well? But when you were before you started to write your own thrillers yeah you know um that's a really good question alan 
most of, I guess the trademark of all of my books is tons of dialogue, humor, and mysteries. Mm-hmm. In most of the, the long historical romances, there's a mystery because my brain works that way. Uh, and, and the dialogue and humor hopefully follow through in all of them. But I'll never forget. Well, the very first, the idea came to me and uh, I wrote the first, it was a romantic suspense and it was the first hardcover and it was in 1989. And, you know, the difference between you say romantic suspense, because if you, if you can, you can't call it a romance unless at the center is the relationship. Okay. And then mm-hmm. you can have anything else around it really impacting on it. But if the center is the relationship in a thriller, it's the conundrum or the mystery or finding out what the hell is going on is at the center. And then you can have life, romance, woo-woo, whatever you want around it. So I wrote like three or four romantic suspense novels. And then what happened, Putnam offered me uh, then I made the New York Times in 1987, I guess. And then Phyllis Brand, who ran Putnam, was probably the smartest, one of the smartest publishers in the world. Certainly the the most renowned woman publisher in the world. And she offered me this absolutely wonderful contract to come over and write historical romances. And so. I did. And I wrote three trilogies in three years. And I was absolutely burned to my heels. And it was 1995. And again, like the camera clicking, you never forget certain things. My sister, who'd never done this before or since, walked up to me and she said, have you ever heard of a little town on the coast of Oregon called The Cove? They make the world's greatest ice cream and bad stuff happens. <laughs> and I went on point. And uh, so I told my publisher, I said, well, I want to write this. And it's not it's not a romance. Uh, I said, well, kind of, you know, on the periphery it is. And so I understand where they were coming for, because if it ain't broke, why fix it? Mm-hmm. And they were doing very, very well with the historicals. But I had enough leverage to dig in my heels and uh, wrote The Cove. And then when they got it, they wanted to bring it out in hardcover. And I said, no, 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 no. It's okay to fail, but you do not want to fail in hardcover. Not if you have a, a name, a track record. And so they brought it out in paper and it did extraordinarily well, uh, very, very well. And then... I got a call and they said, okay, when's the next one? And I said, what? Because <laughs> it was a standalone. And, and then they said, well, yeah, we want, we don't, we want an FBI series. It's fantastic. And so I, I, I just was betwixt in between. And then I kid you not, and other authors know this. They will attest to the fact I'm not insane. But there was a voice in the back of my head that said, how about me, Catherine? And it was Dylan Savage who appeared in the last third of the Cove. And he was the other FBI special agent's partner. And so book two was basically Sherlock's book. This was when they met. Um, 
and there is some romance in it, but the the wedding and all that stuff, because it's not a romance, it's off scene. Mm-hmm. Just like the birth of their kid is off scene. Um, and J.T. Ellison, who co-wrote the Brit series with me, I remember her telling me, she says, well, a series isn't really a series until book four. And I was like, oh, don't be silly. Blah, blah, blah. She was totally right. <laughs> totally right. I hit book four, The Edge, and all of a sudden, everything clicked. And it was indeed a series. Well, wow, so, so it was supposed to be. So, so it started out as a standalone. Now you got twenty six dollars in that standalone. series. <laughs> yeah, and then Dylan Savage came in, and uh, and Sherlock again. The second book was basically her book, mm-hmm. and that's where they meet and so forth. And uh, then it went from there, and then it it evolved into two uh, plots that ran parallel to each other. Sometimes they crossed into one. Sometimes they remain remain totally separate. But it it just evolved over time, and I hope that I'm smart enough to know when to stop the series so that the characters do not become uh, caricatures, mm-hmm. like I'm sure you've seen in series, and I certainly have. And you don't want to fall into that because you should have stopped. So we'll see. Then the next book I'm writing is the 27th, I guess, and uh, it's pretty exciting so far. And is that, I was kind of curious too, because uh, does it get easier to to write a series like this with time, or does it become more difficult to find inspiration and new stories to tell? And how, how's that how's that process evolved for you uh, over the years? Interesting question. Actually, I used to just be overflowing with plot ideas, and 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 so I at one point I was writing, you know, two, three books, four, sometimes even four books a year, and then it's it slows down as you get older. And what I was doing was writing one FBI thriller a year and one historical romance, and there are such disparate genres that it sort of kept your brain unconstipated. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'd be really glad to write one and then ready to go back because it would be new again to an FBI series or back and forth. And then I got to a point where I really couldn't do the two a year. So I started doing historical, otherworldly novella adventures with one of the main characters in one of the historical uh, romance series, uh, Grace and Sherbrooke. And so I've got six of those. I try to do one a year. So everybody gets their fix mm-hmm. and I get my fix too. So it's, it's, it's worked out in terms of, I, I don't know that inspiration is the word I would ever use. The The fact of the matter is you, you, you spark, it came down, I get a, a what if idea, for example, mm-hmm. in the target, which was the third book in the FBI series. All I knew going into it was we have this guy. I didn't know who he was or why he was there, but he was in the Rockies in Colorado because he was stressed out about something or he was escaping something. And one day he finds this little girl sexually and physically abused in the forest. What happens? And that's how that book started. And then it kind of develops and evolves from there. Uh, so is that inspiration? I don't know. Um, it just it just comes. And if you're a pantser, there's a potser and a planter. I never heard those words in my life till maybe mm-hmm. five years ago. But I'm definitely a pantser. You write by the seat of your pants. Mm-hmm. 
And what it means is it takes a lot of extra time if you're that way, because you'll write and then you'll think of all different ways to make it better. So you'll have to go back and make all sorts of changes. I call it backward buildup. So things just things just evolve and, and the characters do what they want to do. And, and if you try to make them go in a direction they have no intention of going, they will make you pay. <laughs> so, so is that inspiration? I, I, I don't think so. I think the trick is always planting your butt in the chair at your computer every morning and writing. And, you know, I, I, I say in writing classes, I've never met a blank page I could edit. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you write crap. It does not matter because then your writing brain goes to work on it. So that's that's kind of that that's really my process. This book that I just started, I, I wanted I had fans ask me about Autumn Backman, who appeared maybe eight books ago, and she's mentioned and but she hasn't been on stage in eight or nine books, and she's psychic. And uh it was a very exciting book. Uh some people love the woo-woo. Psychic stuff. Some people don't. So maybe every four or five books I will have it because Savage is psychic. And uh, then there was another character in Nemesis. Her name is Lady Elizabeth Palmer in England. And this is the book where Sherlock kicks big butt. We're talking a terrorist. We're talking the attempted bombing of St. Paul's Cathedral. And there was a character in there, and her name, again, was Elizabeth Palmer. And I found her fascinating, and I wanted to see what happened to her. So she and Autumn come back in this book, and they're two separate plots, and they will probably come together a little bit. We'll see. Right now, there's absolutely no inspiration. There's just seeing where they're going to take me and where the plot takes me. And the plot's always like an onion. You keep thinking onion, peel one layer, <laughs> and there's another, peel that layer. You know, you have to, always in the back of your head is complexify. And do you and, write every day or do, do you have like- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Monday through Friday. And if there's no deadline or nothing cooking, then the weekends are always just fun. And do you use, do you use Word or, or some other way of writing these? Uh, yeah, I use Word. In fact, I bought my first computer in- 1981 uh -huh. it was a vector it had a five inch floppy disk yeah. and <laughs> yeah, the, the green screens right oh <laughs> uh, and it cost ten thousand dollars oh wow <laughs> and it took me a week to learn how to use it but they're magic it was magic what it did was if you if you were typing on a typewriter and you made a mistake you'd have to retype the freaking page <laughs> uh, and even with the vector way back in the dark ages you just delete and, and things were wonderful. So, uh, you know, there are a lot more bells and whistles now, but uh, I, I have no more liking than I did for that vector way back in the arc days. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first computer I got to the manuals. It came like with like 10 books, like a car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, I would say, well, I had somebody with me training me for, for three days. <laughs> It was that it was that intensive, you know, because nobody really knew all that much and everybody was trying to learn together. So it was very exciting. So, in so, terms of writing, um, I'm an early morning person, mm -hmm. which disgusts a lot of people. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I tend I tend to stop writing about uh, 1030. I write from like 730 to 1030. 
and uh, you know, answer all do Facebook every day. I always post every day on Facebook. Um, and anybody who wants to see what's going on in my life, or they, you know, I have quite a, a group of people. It's probably about 60 or 70 people. And what it's become is these people know each other. And I'm kind of like the center of the wheel in the community center, you know, mm -hmm. and they'll respond to me and then they know each other. And I'll never forget. Uh, I wrote in a post. I said, where's Michelle? I haven't heard from her in three days. And I had 10 people comment, say, she, her mother's ill, her mother's ill, her mother's ill, but I'll tell her to get to you. And she emailed me. Oh, wow. To tell me. So it's, it's quite, it, it's so interesting. Social media is a mess, needless mm. to say, when you, you know, if you play politics or do any crap like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and people are kind of off Facebook. In fact, I want to kill them right now, personally. Mm -hmm. But that platform is has been perfect for me over the years since, yeah, it's been well over 10 years. Mm. And it's always a lot of fun. Yeah. So if anybody wants to join up, just come to me on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I was just curious so now. Um, so could you tell us a little bit now about the about the latest novel, about the reckoning? How did that come to you? And uh, tell us, yeah, what's it? Okay. What's it about? Well, that was interesting because all I really knew was I had a character who was young, a woman, a girl, and her parents are murdered, and she is almost murdered, but she manages to escape. And I have a, a, a person that uh, who's a friend in Queensland, Australia. And so then I sent my character to Australia, which was wonderful. I had such fun with that and made sure I got everything right because we're not Aussies. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then where she led was amazing, was amazing. I had no idea what was going to happen with her, but it was really amazing. And then Emma Hunt, was in the third book and she was a little girl that our judge found in physically and sexually abused then the hunt family reappears in backfire which was about six seven books ago and emma is a, a piano prodigy so everybody said more emma more emma so i brought her back and the hunt family and everybody loves the hunt family and she's going to be playing at Kennedy Center because she's that she's very famous now and she's 12 years old. And so that plot really turns itself on its ear. Uh, when I got to this one point, it just totally flipped on itself. And uh, so they were, you know, I guess that's, you know, things are going on in your medulla oblongata back there. But I was really su surprised at what happened and it worked perfectly. Again, you keep peeling off the onion, peeling off the onion, changing directions, keeping the reader guessing. That's kind of the point. And uh, one thing in all of the all of the books, every single one of them, I can always promise there's going to be justice at the end. And I'm never really all that gnarly or gritty or bloody or or or, or that kind of thing. Very rarely, very very rarely. Um, and none of the main characters are ever going to die and certainly no pets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard that, that the, the pets, like the, the, the worst thing you can do. <laughs> oh, a friend of mine 
asked me to read her book and it was set back in uh in it was a western set back in about 1860 and there was this battle and the dog got killed and i said you kill this dog i will never speak to you <laughs> So she ended up having the dog die of old age. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I was kind of curious too, because so so since you're like write these as you're you're a pastor, like you said before, uh, from from when you're staring at the blank page till you're done, like how, how does that that process take for you usually? The 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 words just come. Uh, you know, Ellen. Everybody has a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it's what you do with it that either either gives you a chance to succeed or it becomes a hobby um i my gift is the words just seem to come things just come and as i said it can be total crap it does not matter because then i will work on it in my brain sometimes when characters are talking i type about 95 words a minute i'm very very fast oh wow yeah but sometimes when they're talking they're talking so fast i can't keep up with them so <laughs> now that doesn't happen all all that all that often, but it, it does happen. So if it's a blank page, it for any length of time, it would mean to me that you're going in or you're trying to go in the wrong direction. And so it's a course correction. It's not writer's block, it's just a bad plot idea, or you need a course correction. That that's really all. So I, I as I say, I write very quickly. Sometimes I'll write 10 pages a day in uh, three hours, two and a half hours, sometimes five, sometimes three. Sometimes it's all editing. If I'm going back to make a lot of changes, uh, I would counsel people, don't don't be tied into, oh, my God, I've got to write five pages, a thousand words or a failure. This is so silly. And don't count your freaking words. Just write and have fun. That's all. And you mentioned before about uh, writing the uh, the the Brit in the uh, FBI with uh, J.T. Ellison. How is that co-authoring co for you? Um, is it a well? Lot different? We, uh, I closed down the series about four years, three years ago, I guess, mm -hmm. because I felt it had come to its natural end. And as I tell readers who ask for more, uh, you know, it's going to be. It it was getting really, really hard to come up with new and unique names to try to kill off the two main characters. Yeah. Uh, JT has a very fertile imagination, though. So anyway, I had canceled it. And then it, I think we're going to start it up again. Oh, wow. That's, that's good. Yeah. Good in fact, I just I just spoke to my agent yesterday and he was very, very pleased about it. And I spoke to JT and we're going to and she already has a plot idea. Oh, wow. so this, is, this is the wonderful thing. And the way we work it is usually people writing together is a nightmare <laughs> and doesn't work. Uh, I'd never done it before, and she hadn't either. And uh, we are best friends. We usually email every day with or without writing. When we're, when we're writing together, it would be three and four times a day because talking about this and that and the other. But, um, you, you know, since the... Since I'm the author, the main author, uh, I drive the bus. You have to have somebody drive the bus, and it has to be well understood. In other words, if I don't like something and she were to like it, my voice is is the one that goes, is the one that takes the, the makes the decision. Because again, if you don't have somebody driving the bus, you've got chaos. So we're going to have a lot of fun if, if it works out, and I hope it does. 
uh, it'll be a blast. And it'll be the seventh book. And uh, and like as soon as we decide on it, I will announce it on Facebook and people will probably go, yes. So we'll, yeah. we'll see. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. And I was kind of curious too, because um, do you, your books are, are so realistic with the FBI stuff on there, like the investigating techniques and the and the and the lingo. Do you, uh, when you do your research, do you have like a context out of the FBI at this point? I'm just kind of curious about that process. Oh, good question. Yes, and Angela Bell was my contact, and I can't believe it. Her gall, she had to retire, <laughs> but uh, she assigned me somebody new. Uh, but for example, in oh, what book was it? I don't remember the name of the book, Enigma, Enigma. Mm -hmm. I had uh, an, uh, a newborn kidnapped out of the nursery in the hospital. And I had no idea how this would work because I knew that they have a special unit in the FBI that deals only with that. So I called them up. She set me up with the, it's called the card unit. And I can't remember what that means. But uh, I spoke to the supervisor for an hour and he told me exactly what they did and exactly what went on in the nursery. So if there were any mistakes, it was on me, not them. So anything I need. And she knows people at the CIA, although they really don't get along that well with the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can, you always go to the horse's mouth, particularly when it's something so utterly different, like kidnapping out of a hospital nursery what the hell do you do mm -hmm. and so everything you know oh yeah I, I could not live without these people I'll never forget back it was six months before 9-11 because if it had happened after that they you couldn't get a cockroach anywhere near Quantico or the Hoover building you know everything mm -hmm. was closed down they asked me to come in to the Hoover building and so it was kind of a VIP tour uh, let me just back up they have a unit at the Hoover building, and this unit knows everything that's written about the FBI in the known universe. And they knew I was very pro-FBI, and uh, you know they have people reading and so forth, and so they invited me back. And we had um, an assistant director, and I went with Karen, you know, my right and left hand. And we we were toured. We got to meet everybody. We went on to Quantico. I met all the people in the behavioral services unit. I don't know how those people do it. Mm. But, you know, the burnout rate there is like three years max. And then you just can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know about the behavioral unit. Right. Yeah. The, the, okay. yeah, the worst. Yeah. yeah the most heinous yeah. people. Ah, yeah. ah. <laughs> um, I did have a serial killer and they were of immense assistance. Because I, I met the, you know, I met the the supervisor there. And so I, I had a great deal of support from them when I needed it. Uh, normally, I know enough to just go. But if there's something special, then I'm right on the phone to them or emailing and saying, <laughs> you know, like if, if they find something, but, you know, people go into the Hoover building to visit. And they have people there scanning everybody, their ID, your driver's license, making sure you're not a freaking terrorist. And so if something is found on there, what do they do? What is the procedure? And so I simply asked, what is the procedure? Because I had that happen. And so I got all the procedure down. Hmm. And I told them, here's what I want to have happen. Can that happen? They said, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's what will happen. 
And so what they did was they worked with me together to figure out how to do it to get to where I needed to be. So they're they're very, I found them to be very, very helpful. If I hadn't been a bestseller, would they have been that helpful? I do not know. No. I do not know. So and right now they've got big problems and I, I just feel mm-hmm. really bad for them, you know, and it's the top, not the agents. The agents, uh, I've met so many agents at Quantico and you'd have mother, daughter, father, son, father, da- all, all these combos. And they wanted to help people mm-hmm. and they were fine, fine people. And I just feel so sad. At, at you know at what's happening at the top it's just so sad i hope things get cleaned up yeah so Catherine, i want to ask you too because um we have aspiring writers uh, that listen to this podcast and you have such an amazing experience and uh, what any, any advice for an aspiring thriller uh, mystery suspense writer that's listening uh, <laughs> kind of well, a loaded question huh <laughs> Uh, well, no, it's a, it, it's it's a good question. I, I guess again, the most important thing, if you decide that you want to write thrillers, I would expect you, or I would say that it's imperative that you read all the top-selling thriller writers. If you don't like them, find, drop them, read somebody, and find somebody you really, really like. Okay, and and write down what you really like. Do you like their pacing? Do you like their dialogue? Do you like the complexity of their plots? You know, write this stuff down, what you really like about that particular writer, one or two of them, and then copy it. If they're pacing, you want to try to copy how they pace. In other words, do they write uh, like normally for a while, I wrote very short chapters with a cliffhanger. I've changed that up. I change it around depending on the book. But and you find out what works for you. But even after you've made all this list, the important thing, rather, it doesn't matter what your genre is, is to sit that butt in a chair in front of your computer and do it. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Otherwise, you don't even have a chance to fail, much less a chance to succeed. One other thing, it is critical that you know English grammar perfectly. You need to know it perfectly so when you break the rules, you know what you're doing. Mm. Uh, I have a lot of sentences that aren't sentences, but they're, they're and I'm sure you've read this too, but you have to know where, where you can do it and how to do it. Uh, so I would suggest that everybody memorize Strunk and White's Elements of Style. That's the best book ever written. It's short, the original book, was written in 1912 and they've made new editions on it. forget the editions read the 1912 because it it still fits it still fits you avoid adverbs like the plague mm-hmm. you use said you do not use adverbs or any of that crap or or blah 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 he shouted no mm-hmm. the way the person says it indicates that he shouted if it so you're just being you're just double dipping there Anyway, there are all sorts of, of things that you can learn in Strunk and White. And also when you're reading, uh, you're, when you find like one or two favorite thriller writers or romance writers or science fiction writers, whatever it is, see how they do dialogue. See how they do it and why you like it. And because if you like certain things, then you will probably do it yourself. And I ain't got nothing else out. That's it. You just sit down and you do it. 
Well, that's great advice. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much because yeah, that's a, if you don't sit down and do it, it's not, it, it'll never get done. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's not magic, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some, well, you know, I could write a book if I had time. I want to smack <laughs> those people. Just yeah. ah. All right. Well, Catherine, thank you so much uh, for uh, for being on the podcast, for talking to us. A Reckoning is out now. I uh, highly recommend people go check that out. Um, it's a lot of fun talking to you. Nice to talk to you, Alan. Thank you for listening to Meet the Thriller Author. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with one of your favorite writers of mysteries and thrillers. Or if this episode's guest is new to you, I hope you give their books a chance. Helping listeners discover new authors and books is one of the coolest outcomes of doing this podcast. As always, you can head over to thrillerauthors.com to sign up to my Thrilling Reads email list. That way you won't miss out on any great deals in thriller and mystery books. You can also check out all the links and resources in the show notes for this episode over at thrillerauthors.com. And also please do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to this show. If you have done that already, I thank you. I really do appreciate your support. For my other links to my author website, social media haunts, and more uh, check out thrillingreads.com forward slash links all my links will be uh, on that uh, page so that's it for this episode Uh, see you next time and stay safe out there